0: Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change podcast. I'm your host Jeff Bloomfield. And whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change podcast. I'm your host Jeff Bloomfield. This podcast, as if you've been listening for any length of time, you know, is dedicated to bringing on really unique guests, really unique humans with great stories so that we can learn not only from their personal journeys, but their professional journeys that might inspire us, give us a little information, a little motivation, and hopefully a lot of application. And today's guest is no different. And I want you to imagine for yourself that you are so skilled in your area of expertise, that you can charge $15,000 for one hour. Wouldn't that be great? You know, that's what today's guest actually can charge and has charged in the past. Uh, Jay Abraham is really the godfather of a lot of marketing, modern-day marketing, a lot of modern-day copywriting, a lot of modern-day marketing strategies. He's helped over 10,000 clients in over 100 different industries across 7,200 sub-industries worldwide. And, and he's been doing this for a long time. I've admired Jay uh, from for a long time as someone who thinks differently. He has uh, what he calls asymmetrical thinking when he approaches how he helps, uh, whether it's individual, small business entrepreneurs, all the way up to large organizations, think differently about their message, think differently about their strategy, and think differently about how they can actually use that asymmetrical thinking to grow faster. And here's the other thing, some people don't know this about Jay, but... He actually helped really instill is Tony Robbins. You ever heard of him? He's helped Tony build Tony's basically his self development empire. Jay's a, a lot of the brains behind that that success that Tony's had. How about Damon John Shark Tank? Damon, you know him. He considers Jay his mentor. Ramit Sethi, who's really a a modern-day, younger version of Jay in a lot of ways, is a marketing genius. These are folks that that call Jay mentor. Well, I call Jay Abraham not only mentor, but friend, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast today so that we can all collectively learn from his native genius. Jay, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jeff, and you over- Uh, elevated my stature. I don't know if I can live up to the expectations, but let's see what happens.
0: Well, Jay, as I forewarned you in the pre-show, every guest that comes on the Driving Change podcast starts with the same exact question. The people want to know, Jay, they want to know your origin story. They want to know your why. So take us back as far as you'd like to and tell us that journey. What's that look like for you that allowed you to, to learn what you've learned and apply what you've applied. Take us back as far as you want to go. Let's hear the Jay Abraham origin story. Sure.
1: So I guess the easiest thing, Jeff, is I'm pretty much an accidental tourist in my own career. I, I got started at age 18. I was married. I had two children at 20. I had the need of somebody 40. The world didn't care. I had no negotiable skill, no education. And the only people that would give me, quote, a chance or an opportunity were crazy but very impressive entrepreneurs in Indianapolis my my origin city uh, who would let me have a desk uh, you know a phone uh, uh, and eat what you kill sort of thing so I could get you know so much a sale so much a distribution channel, so much a deal whatever it was and um, when you only eat when you earn you figure out what works and what doesn't and then you figure out, more what works better. So you can concentrate on that. And because I was never paid for hours, I was only paid for results. I had the latitude of doing whatever I wanted as much or as little as I wanted. So I would normally have five or six deals going concurrently and fortuitously and uh, really accidentally, but wonderfully, they were never in the same industry. And after a while, I realized that people in one industry didn't have a clue, Jeff, how people in another industry thought, acted, transacted, marketed, strategized their business models, how they attracted buyers, how they converted prospects, how they communicated value, their distribution channels. And I was able to take pretty simplistic and general and pretty uh, commonplace elements from different industries I was involved in combine them into hybrids, fresh hybrids, that I would then apply to different industries I was involved in. And they would explode. And everyone thought I was brilliant. Ah, This is wonder kind. But really, I was nothing more than a one-eyed man in the land of the blind. And I realized that. And then when I really understood the power of borrowing success approaches from outside an industry and funneling them and adapting them and adopting them to industries that were unfamiliar. I started doing it with uh, resolve uh, with a, a vengeance, so to speak, a positive constructive vengeance and then I just started doing more and more in my and my results got bigger and they compounded and fast forward without you know going through a lot of the transactional episodes to today.
0: So Jay, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you've been a mentor to a lot of really successful people, like Tony Robbins, Damon John, people like Brian Tracy. You've been friends with Zig Ziglar back in the in the heyday, and it seems like if you look at a lot of these really successful entrepreneurs and business leaders over the, the my lifetime, especially, every time you start to peel back the layers of why they were successful, you, you end up finding Jay Abraham snuck in there somewhere. So you're you're kind of the secret weapon, and as you've as you've done a lot of your work over the years. And you've been able to start to think about codifying success patterns and practices and then seeing that regardless of the industry and regardless of the entrepreneur or the business leader, there's patterns here. And you've been able to find out how to codify those patterns and then put them into practice. What were some of those patterns and what have you learned in working with so many of those folks and helping them grow their businesses?
1: So... uh... I learned earlier in my career that one of the biggest leverage points in anything in selling is the headline or the equivalent in a, a printed uh, text. It would be the headline, you know, the first big bold words that appear in a, an ad. It's also many things. It's the headline that appears on a website. It's the signage that would appear on a booth at a trade show. It's the subject line in a, um, in a, an email, it would be the first paragraph of a letter. It's the it's the caption above or beyond a picture in a brochure or a catalog. It also has an application to selling. It's the first paragraph that a sale or first few paragraphs a salesman or woman would utter when somebody calls in or when they call out or when they have a cold call or a scheduled call. It's what uh, uh, the order order department would uh, would utter first when people call them, if somebody walks in. And I was able to learn about variation, that you do something one way, it produces X. You do it a different way, it could produce two, three, four, five, up to 21X for the same amount of time, effort, the same amount of relative space, if it's an ad or, or expenditure of Opportunity cost, if it's somebody on the phone with somebody, somebody dealing with somebody that walks into a dealership or a furniture store, things like that. So that was the first thing I learned, the power of variation and the importance of and the criticalness of a headline and how that one part of a selling process could change positively results from 50 percent to 2100 percent just by knowing what to do. The next thing was I learned how to change. If you change the positioning or the proposition, that separately could have a huge impact. Then I learned how you create your proof, your credibility of your proposition separately can have another enhancement. Then I learned that by understanding risk reversal and taking that away, that could be another denominator, as could the bonus you use if you use a bonus and even the way you lead somebody in your call to action. Then I learned about things like unique selling proposition, how to distinguish yourself. Then I learned about lifetime value. Then I learned about upselling, downselling, cross-selling. Then I learned about... Uh, about uh, uh, allowable acquisition cost. Then I learned about uh, uh, optimization, highest and best use theory. Then I learned, I'm just going on and on. Then I learned about uh, the rules for relevancy. Then I learned about sunk cost marketing and repurposing. Then I, I mean, I just go on and on and on. Then I learned the strategy of preeminence then I learned about um, about the power of Parthenon. Then I learned about how to harness geometry in a business. Then I learned about uh, 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 how to preemptively address objections and 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 negatives. Then I learned how to figure out the mind of the market. And on and on and on. And I just kept layering it. I can go on and on because I got about seventy five key distinctions I'm known for today that I learned, but. Back
0: then, it was just a progression. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, it's funny, Jay. I was telling my team before the podcast, I'm like, yeah, I could probably just go ask Jay one question, and then I could go walk away and come back for an hour because he has so much value <laughs> to give in just one question that will be well worth it. And as you think about what I love about about you and your approach is as you know our business pretty well at Brain Trust now and you know that we're really tied into the neuroscience and the behavioral psychology of decision making well you were kind of the originator of of clickbait before it was considered digital clickbait right you had this intuitive ability to know what caused buyers to say yes what caused them to move what caused them to take action well before everything moved into this digital transformation world and I, that's what I'm most excited about is is learning more about the history of that and how you've utilized that uh, in in the way you've helped other folks grow.
1: It wasn't yeah, it wasn't formal understanding of the mechanisms, but it was understanding that if I can take you and show you, Jeff, that I understand where you are right now at a seminal level. I understand how it feels. I understand what you're suffering. I understand the hopes, the dreams. I understand how to express what the transitional process can be like to get you to a better place and then I understand how to project forward I guess you would call it future pacing but I never knew those words when i learned when i did it it was just intuitive I had great respectful empathy for whatever the human condition was that uh was the 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 driver of any kind of a of a purchasing transaction and i tried, very hard to understand the mind of the market in in a very respectful way.
0: Right, right, right. That's what I love about, the, the idea of understanding that the science and psychology of decision-making is you've done so many things well uh, intuitively over the years. And we tell our clients all the time, many times they're doing the right behaviors intuitively, but they're not doing them intentionally. And over the course of your career, you, you've just basically discovered how to do these things intentionally. And, and we now know it's the right information delivered the right way and in the right order. You want to maximize the way that decision-making happens. In the brain. And I love that you figured that out over the years. Now, here's the thing that that I know listeners love. Maybe it's the maybe it's the human, the human condition in general. We see these people like a Jay Abraham or a Tony Robbins or or Damon John or or any of these great heroes of the the business faith, as we would say. Like, oh, they've always been successful. They've never made any mistakes. I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here, and I want you to tell the audience your biggest failure. Like, give, give us a story around a big mistake you made that cost you either financially, it cost you time, it cost you emotional capital. Just one of those stories where you really thought you had this thing the right way, and it turned out to not work out so well for you.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you two different ones uh, because to combine they cost me personally about five million dollars. So, it, well, the one that was probably worse was. Oh, I was going to say my divorce, but probably <laughs> that wasn't as bad as a, as being in partnership with a sociopath. I could tell you a lot of things, but I'll give you the two that are probably a little bit more benign, okay? So the first one was that the biggest income generating year of my life, I owed about $10 million in taxes. And I was trying to be outsmart the, the IRS in an ethical way. And it's still, you can do it today. If, if at the end of the year, before December 31st, I want to spend whatever I want to spend, 10, $20 million on a mailing, I could do it with ads too, but let's say a mailing that I sent out to whatever number of people that would pay to mail. I can write that off this year and if I drop that on December 31st, as long as it's actually mailed, I get the write-off, but it wouldn't be delivered until the next tax year, at which time the sales would come in. So it would be sort of the ultimate role. I thought that was so brilliant. So I took millions of dollars. I rented every name I could. I went to every financial newsletter I could, and I I, I mailed 30 different newsletter offers at the end of the year. And I thought, I'm so smart. I'm going to get back a profit on my tax roll. I'm going to write off all this money so I won't pay taxes. I'll get it all back with a profit in January. I'm just the smartest guy in the world. But I didn't realize two things. The stock market dropped right before I mailed it. And I oversaturated the the market. I kept mailing the same names. I you know let's say that there were I was mailing ten million letters, but there were only about four million names. So they were getting two and a half offers a piece, and they got saturated. And 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 so let's say that I owed fifty cents on the dollar. I actually lost about seventy five cents on the dollar. So if I'd done nothing, I would have been another two and a half million dollars ahead. So I lost big, and that was a lesson that uh, I'm not as smart as I think. I better validate my assumption and think think very carefully about what can go wrong with this, not just what can go right. So it was a good lesson, a very painful and expensive one. Then uh, a couple of years ago, a colleague and I got infatuated with a concept that we thought the market would love. And this is before everybody started doing free interviews and the like, people were charging. And we had this brilliant idea and we called it power panels. And we were going to take somebody like yourself and maybe take everyone, excuse me, let me turn this off. Let me just turn this off. We were going to take everyone in a category that had a similar expertise, get five or eight of them and ask them all the same 10 questions and create this incredible swath of perspective on the same issue, which we were stimulated intellectually. We thought the world would love it. And we it it was a pain in the ass because we were able to get all these iconic people and all kinds of expert distinctions to agree, but their schedules were so... Difficult to align that we had to interview each one separately and then almost like uh, like uh, trying to Photoshop everyone together. We had to edit it together into a seemingly cohesive part. It took us almost a year and we spent a million dollars on it, but it wasn't just we spent a million dollars, we stopped everything else because we decided this was gonna be the coolest thing in the world, it was gonna be very profitable, we were intellectually gonna have such a great time, we're gonna make all these acquaintances. we're gonna learn all this stuff, we're gonna grow and blah, blah, blah. So we didn't pretest our assumption, you know where I am taking this. So a year of doing it, a million dollars out of pocket, not earning millions of dollars, because it was totally consuming for a full year. Then we got to the point, we had all these people that said they were going to promote for us, affiliates, strategic alliances, partners. And we had we, we were so busy doing it, we spent almost no time on the marketing. So we threw the marketing together at the last minute. None of the partners uh, felt, came through for us. The marketing sucked. We didn't have the partners. We had to pay in the open market. Nobody gave a crap and we lost the whole thing. And now somewhere I've got it as a bonus. I give free occasionally as a memory of of a year investment, uh, a million dollars out of pocket and a loss of millions of dollars of income that I stopped because I was so thrilled that this was going to be so much fun and lucrative. So, I mean, things like that. And, And there's a lesson in it, which before you ask me, I'll preempt. If the assumption is wrong, everything that flows from the assumption is wrong. And when you have the chance to pre-validate an assumption before you invest too much time, effort, uh, opportunity cost, resources, uh, potential, you should probably see if the market really cares.
0: All right. That, that, that's great. That's that's helpful, right? So people can realize, hey, even people like Jay, they're human. They make they make mistakes. They've done trial and error. But let's go to the other side of that equation. And you've been successful for a long time, but I'm sure it wasn't always that way. But there was a tipping point moment, right? T- tell the story about the time when you went all in and you took a big risk to try something different, knowing that all the chips were in the middle of the table. And if it paid off, it was going to hit. But if it didn't, you're probably going to be back on the street. What's that story look like?
1: Uh, well, the first one I did was Icy Hot. Everybody knows it as an out, you know, as a product that uh, Shaquille O'Neal promotes. But it used to be a mail order company that was just a struggling old company that was doing nothing. And the man that bought it out of almost uh, bankruptcy uh, gave me a non-paid job, a commission-only <laughs> job, and he gave me the assignment. He had no marketing budget, but he was willing to spend more than than uh, the first transaction purchase. He was willing to spend more than the first sale to get a sale because he knew that he'd get repeats, but he wasn't willing to put a penny up for advertising. So my job was to go to every radio station, television station, newspaper, magazine, anything I could go to that had advertising to that target audience, which was an older uh, uh, demographic, and see if I could persuade the media to run ads for us when they had unsold uh, capability, and we would pay them on results. And it was really hard in the beginning, but I figured out after a lot of trial and error, and it was purely on commission, I didn't get anything for doing it. I figured out how to uh, persuade them, how to get them to not just say yes, but to follow through and implement And in a year of very painful and very high stress uh, effort, I was able to get over a thousand radio, television stations, media of all kind to run ads for us almost every day. And we went from a few thousand to 500,000 plus uh, number of buyers. We went from a company that was not even relevant to a company that got sold back then for about $60 million. We went from a company that was a mail order company to getting so much no cost free advertising exposure that everybody started going to their groceries and their drugstores asking for it. And we actually forced retail distribution, which is really interesting because today an e-commerce company is worth more if it's successful than probably a consumer products. But back then, a mail-order company was worth this, and a consumer products was worth this, and just by accidentally having demand be so acute at the retail level, and having people, you know, ask for it to their groceries and their pharmacies, and having them buy from us, and moving us to a consumer product, it added a zero on the end of what the business was worth. And then they sold it for about $60 million 15 months later, which is pretty interesting. So that was it was a pretty big, I mean, I didn't own any equity in the business, but I had a nice payday and and the experience was exhilarating because you went from adverse uh, rejection to figuring out how to get people to at least consider your proposition, to accept it, to do it, to continue doing it. You got all, and it would just build and build and build and all of a sudden, you know, we were getting thousands and thousands of new buyers every day coming in and it was really exhilarating, but it was a lot of work, but that was the first big hit I did. And and the next one that I did was Entrepreneur Magazine and I did something, if you wanna know, I can just tell you that was it, or I can tell you what it was, it's up to you, Jeff.
0: No, that's great, but let's come back to that in, in a moment. But what I really wanted to, to you to expound upon now is <clears throat> if I'm a small business owner or an entrepreneur, the story that they just heard, I want to know how How did you actually go through the process of getting essentially radio stations to agree to a gain share model, which is crazy to think about because at the time, nobody was doing anything like that. Um, and, and you were able to convince not only one, but a series of hundreds of radio stations across the country to eventually adopt this kind of a model. And that kind of divergent thinking that paid off. Tell Tell the group, the audience, how you were able to do that.
1: Well, and you teach masterful uh, and and qualitative uh, neuroscience-driven sales technology. When I started, I started with probably the dumbest sales approach you could have. I would get uh, radio television station managers on the phone and said, you don't take performance-based ads, do you? And they'd say, no. And I'd say, "Okay, thank you. (laughs) And so that was the first thing. And I was going to throw in the towel after about a month of total, almost 100 percent rejection. But I accidentally met somebody who worked for a New York firm that did tens of millions of dollars doing that. He gave me a list of stations that did do it. I knew them to be performance oriented stations who would run ads when they had unsold advertising. So I got a renewed confidence, I shifted my presentation to you don't, and I just reversed it, I know you do. And I have one that I think where merits uh, your serious consideration. And as I analyze, I hadn't really done a good analysis, but I, I tried to analyze why media would not run speculative mail order ads, response ads, And there were a couple of reasons. One, uh, there was a lot of people that had great promises and didn't pay them because the the money would go to that company. Number two, there were a number of people that not only didn't pay them, they didn't ship the product or they didn't ship it on time. And there was a ton of bad will and, and consumer complaints that would go to the station. So I tried to figure out in my modified presentation how to overcome preemptively all that. So what I did was this. I would say, okay, let me tell you why you should take this. First of all, we, we are not asking for a penny of the revenue. We will actually pay you more. We will write you a check. We are fine having the orders come to you. You can bank the money. We will send you 15% more. We gave them 115% of sales. And all we care about is that you get us the name and the address of the buyer right away so we can ship their product out right away. And uh, think about it. If that product doesn't get to them on time and if it doesn't deliver or over deliver on the promise, they aren't going to buy. So we would be losing our ass you know, futilely, it makes no sense that we would do all this unless the product did deliver or over deliver and that a lot of them repurchase, doesn't it? But then I said, but even that stated, we don't want your station or your magazine or anybody to be put into any kind of a position of uh, jeopardy or or negativity in case a a jar of this product doesn't get delivered on time. And let's be honest, we're at the mercy of the post office, right? Somebody could sit with it in because it was sent out a special sh- bulk ship weight and, and a post uh, a postal delivery man or woman could decide, I'm not going to do it right now. They could throw it away. There's all kinds of things. So I said, we will not even let you promote this to your audience unless we first send you a dozen jars of the product to have on hand in case anyone complains. If they do, you give them a jar and hopefully their jar will come also. So instead of being negative, they'll be thrilled. We wanna protect you. So I tried to overcome every inherent negative, but I also started with the reverse assumption. The assumption was you do do it. I know you do it. I know you do it. And I was able to say, I know you do it for this and this and this. I think you should also do it for this. That's how I did
0: it. Well, there's just so much gold in there. And I, and I want to unpack a, a little bit of it. So those listeners who are out there thinking about, okay, that was, that was a lot of really good stuff. I want to summarize a couple points. The one thing I picked up on was you really understood your customer. You understood your audience. You understood their business. You understood their goals, their objectives. And you understood why they would maybe not say yes. To something, and then you were able to actually go find a couple who you knew would say yes to something similar to get the to get things started. And the big thing that that I picked up on there was the concept of you learning how to position risk reversal in a way that was super beneficial, you know, to the prospect. And I know we we teach this all the time that you know, the brain moves uh, to, to avoid a loss at twice the urgency as to, to, to pursue a gain. And using risk reversal, you can kind of cover the gamut there with that. Is, that. is that right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I learned risk reversal early in my career. And I realized that anytime two people come together to transact anything, commerce, uh, employment, uh, love, romance, parenting, anything, One side is always, Jeff, uh, being asked either knowingly, unknowingly, implicit, explicitly, uh, deservedly, undeservedly to take on all, most or more than all of the risk. And if you can identify what that risk is tangibly and intangibly, and you can mitigate it, you can eliminate it, or you can show someone how to manage it, it's easier for them to say yes and no.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly what we teach a lot of our clients, and I know we're talking a lot about, you know, risk reversal and removing risk and communication effectiveness, and this is goes way beyond though, and I want everyone to to. Under, to, to, to out there listening to, to get this, this isn't just about trying to sell icy hot to a radio station or fill in the blank your product or solution to fill in the blank your prospect. This is about relationships in general and, 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 and communication effectiveness in all aspects of your life. And, and what I love about the concepts here is, is yes, most of us have to, to work in some type of a business to make a living. And that business has to sell something um but we have to learn how to communicate effectively from the other person's point of view and when we understand that and we understand their goals and we understand what they find risky and we can help them solve problems and remove that risk for them it works in all aspects of our lives doesn't it Yes, i agree all right all right let's go into some rapid fire questions a little q and a rapid fire with jay abraham here when you think back to the the course of your life and your development um, who or what had the biggest influence on your life? Was it a person? Was it a what? Was it an experience that really started to mold and form how you think and how you've helped others?
1: It was vicarious. It was a, 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 a two books I read by the same author, Claude Hopkins, who was a master marketer in the thirties and forties. And uh, I read the book at the recommendation of a brilliant marketer that I retained for one of the companies I was running the marketing for. And it it put all of my, uh, the abstract and and sort of uh, un, un, unclarified understandings, the, the intuitive understanding into clarified, um, uh, sort of very tangible and very concrete order. And it showed me the drivers of everything. And with that, I was able to just explosively multiply my performance. So that was the most influential. And uh, the book was called Scientific Advertising, and the other was called My Life in Advertising. And the author, I'm sure you can still buy the book together as two books, Claude Hopkins. And what was really interesting, Jeff, uh, and I'll give you one more dimension that you didn't ask, but it, it, it relates to this. We retained this really, excuse me, really top, uh, marketing guy and he gave me this bibliography. This was before Amazon. I was not very prosperous and I spent every dollar I could r- r- round up to get uh, book finders all over the world to find these books because they wasn't, you just didn't go on Amazon and find, you had to have somebody look everywhere for them. Uh, this guy gave me three books to read and explain why. This man, Claude Hopkins, was the greatest marketer of his time. He He came up with lifetime value residual uh he understood risk reversal all these things but he wrote two books one was a distillation of his principles and the other was his biography or autobiography but what was key was the man had me read the principles first and then study the autobiography to understand the actions the activities and the events that the man lived through that caused him to formulate those principles. And then he had me read the biography of the man who had the advertising agency this man worked for so I could put his subjective perspectives into perspective of the whole. And that was an extraordinary picture for me to understand. And it explained so much and it opened up just amazing opportunity vistas of understanding for me.
0: Well, that's interesting. I wasn't what I was expecting at all. I, I thought you'd have some crazy story about some, you know, shaman or some Buddhist monk in some temple in Mount Kilimanjaro or some crazy story. So that gives us all a little bit of hope that you can find true inspiration that's game changing for your life in in authors and in people that you've admired and books that they've written, things of that nature. So, okay, let's let's go to question number two. Uh, who in your life, throughout your lifetime, could be personal, professional? Uh, Did you find have found them were the most fascinating or interesting uh, people or? Person- Oh
1: wow. Well, you know probably uh, Tony Robbins is probably one of them. I, I'm involved with uh, uh, a project with somebody that's probably known uh, to certain people depending on your your, your news preference. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci, he's pretty interesting. I get a kick out of him. Uh, I was friends with Stephen Arcovey, the late Stephen Arcovey. He's really interesting man. Uh, uh, you know, I've had so many entrepreneurs I've worked with, uh, you know, I have, uh, one of my good friends is the former head strategist for, uh, uh, you know, for, uh, TPG, the second or third biggest, uh, private equity firm. And he's really, I mean, super intelligent people are fascinating, uh, my wife and I go to the hedge fund conference every year, and we watch all these very brilliant people explain things that I understand. Those are fascinating. Uh, uh, I had one of my great mentors, and he was so brilliant. I learned barter, the art of exchanging goods and services for goods and services, and figuring out how, when all, all is done, you end up with a lot of money in the process. A lot of profit from a guy who was the number one barter expert in the world. He died, but he was my mentor. He taught me how he had transacted billions of dollars of barter for everyone from Chrysler, uh, Mazda, Sheraton, DHL, uh, uh, all kinds of things, and he taught me how to how to take that very, very agile way of conceptual and connective thinking and extrapolate it and and translate it to all kinds of other elements of what I was doing to look at things from sort of a prism as opposed to uh, a monodimensional sort of a way. And that was pretty cool. But I've helped 300 experts over my career and most of them have been A-level experts So they're all fascinating. You know, some are uh, more humble, some are more arrogant, some are more brilliant, some are more anal, but they're all interesting. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, that's probably, you know, I mean, I got to think a little bit about it, but I've just been privileged to be around and I've done it around the world, which is even more interesting. You know, I've just, you know, I've gotten to be part of a lot of really cool, uh, people that uh, represent so many different dimensions of commerce that I don't even know if I can isolate one fact because I've just been, I mean, my life is very
0: unique, Jeff. <laughs> well, we certainly know that. You, you know, one of the things I've admired about you is I've gotten to know you and become friends is that there's certain people you come in contact with and they they think differently, which you certainly do. Um, But as I've observed you and I've watched you and I've listened to you, you are a student, not just of business, but of life. And you're able to take in all of your experiences in any given moment. And you're processing that information in order to categorize it and then figure out how to apply it and put it into a library to know just exactly when to pull that information out at the right time for the right uh, application. You know, it's once, it's, I don't know who said it originally, but the difference between knowledge and wisdom, your know, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit Wisdom's knowing that it doesn't go in a fruit salad, right? And you have that ability to take knowledge and translate it into wisdom on application. And what I want our guests to, and our, our listeners rather to, to know today and to hear from you is if you... Listen earlier I kicked off saying that you could charge $15,000 an hour for your consulting and coaching and our listeners today are getting an hour of free consulting right now. So if I'm out there and I'm an entrepreneur or a small business owner or just a business leader in general and I know that you've trust me I know that you've got like 800,000 points of light on business growth and asymmetrical thinking for exponential growth in a business but what would be the the the, the three or four or five things that you would say hey get these right get these things right. And you can really start to see some lift in whatever it is you're doing to grow faster. What are those things?
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I think I would say that first of all, don't, don't, I will start with, (laughs) you got to have some advantage in what you do. And that advantage can be either the performance of your product, the price of your product, the people who recommend your product, the access you have to distribution of your product, uh, 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 maybe uh, uh, a, uh, a, a number of other uh, type purchases so you can be more competitive in pricing, maybe how you package the product with other things. But if you don't have any advantage and you're just basically speculating out of the luck of the draw that you'll get business for no definitive reason, that's a scary way to try to go into or maintain a business. And in today's world, I don't think it even warrants trying, number one. Number two is don't depend on anyone's source to get all your business. We teach our clients how to build what's called a power Parthenon, which is a multitude of, of um, access vehicles, revenue sources, distribution channels to add to their main channel. Uh, that's the next one. Uh, I'll give you four. I would say anytime you can figure out who else has a trusted, credible, direct access to the same profile as the people you want, you should try to structure a strategic alliance, a joint venture, co-branding, power partnering type of a relationship with them. And uh, concurrently to that as an offshoot, what else do people buy before, during, after instead of what I buy? Because there's tremendous opportunity there. Number three, understand that that uh, uh, one size doesn't fit all in, in a majority of selling situations. Different sources of buyers are worth more or less. Different types of buyers are worth more or less. People who buy based on different positionings or premises, even if they're buying the same thing, are worth more or less. And if you don't know what the, the relative metrics of value creation are, if you don't know that certain buyers are worth X when they buy the first time, how many more purchases you get out of them in a year, how many years they buy, marginal net worth, lifetime value, You won't know what you can afford to invest, not spend. And that's another thing. You're not, Mark, people are dumb about marketing and selling, uh, Jeff. They don't understand that they are investors. And when you are an investor, you're investing for yield. If you don't know the yield you're getting, then you're pretty promiscuous and profligate investor. You need to know what you're getting and you need to know what the yield is worth because you're probably spending too little or too much on your selling or marketing activities. Uh, People tend to arbitrarily allocate a monthly allocation for advertising or marketing or they will allocate a flat amount for their salespeople. And I've always thought that was ludicrous because certain kinds of buyers might be worth 10 times more than others. And if you don't incentivize people to get those, then they're not any more incentivized than somebody who's worth one-tenth of that. And so, I mean, it's a lot of things I don't think most people analyze. There's a great, wait, I can't talk. There's a great quote that I love from Socrates, a life unexamined is a life not worth living. And my quote that's an um, aberration of that is that a business that doesn't constantly examine every performant, performance element, and certainly in the, in the revenue side, which I concentrate on, and knows how it's performing is a, is a business not worth owning. And I think there's just so much more people can get. I teach people how to get uh, profit performance beyond exponential. And it has to do with the fact that mathematically it's a proven given. You can take performance, Jeff, five gradients above exponentiation. It's called hyper-operationalizing, tetration, heptation, hexation, pentation, octation. But when you realize that it is, you know, you can take performance above exponential. If that's true, and there's so much more you can do with time, effort, opportunity, access, capital, human capital, intellectual capital, Uh, a buyer, prospect, distribution channel, Um, then you should never allow yourself or your people to operate in what I call the incremental zone. If the same effort, time or less, you can operate in the exponential zone. So there's probably a good start of thought. (laughs) You
0: think? (laughs) I would encourage any of you that are listening out there right now, you might want to pause if you're driving, pull over, rewind about 10 minutes, And get out a pen and paper and write down what you think Jay just said, because there was a lot of gold in the last 10 minutes and a lot of things that you can apply into your business or your personal life, quite frankly. And and so this has been awesome. And I know that I wish that we had more time because our listeners have no idea the depth of experience and expertise that you have. We try to compress a lot into a really small, short window. That's The the negative of these interviews are there's not enough time for guests like you to really get out the gold of who you are and what you can do for others. So where can others find more information about you? Is it abraham.com? Where should we point them?
1: Let me give you a smaller person and you just want to have exposure, we we give a lot of stuff on abraham.com. If you're large enough, I'm always interested, Jeff, in looking at at companies, deals, challenges, opportunities. They can go to J-A-Y at abraham.com and I'll arrange for someone to talk to him and see if, if there's any opportunity for the both of us. But we give more things away than most gratis and it's very easy. And I'm a great investor and contributor to entrepreneurs and people who want to be. So we give books away and and programs and interviews and keynotes. So there's a lot of stuff there.
0: Love it. Love it. And this has been great. And I, I personally can recommend Jay. And as I've gotten to know him and become friends with him, Jay, you you are someone that I look, look up to not only as a mentor personally, but the way that you're able to add value to others. You're not just an intelligent human being, but you've got the level of humility with practicality. And I know you, and I know that your heart beats for helping other people succeed and helping people really find their purpose and and, and think about things divergently, differently. So you know, if you want different results, you have to sometimes think different thoughts. And, and I love that you are committing your, your life at this point to helping others, not just entrepreneurs, but anyone in your path to be more successful. And that's the legacy that you're leaving. And I really want to Thank you for the time that you've you've given to us today on the Driving Change podcast. Uh, stay tuned, uh, the audience out there. Jay and I have got a few things cooking together that we're going to be releasing over the course of 2022, and I'm excited for the future. And I'm excited for anyone out there that reaches out to Jay in the way that he can help them, and the way that he can help them get exponential growth in their own lives. So thanks again for for joining us and being part of the Driving Change podcast.
1: No, Jeff, and I feel the same for you. I think I mean my private discussions. You're on a Mission and it's not really to make money, although you want to make money. You're trying to make a difference in people who waste opportunity costs to have something meaningful that more of their market should be taking advantage of.
0: That's very very well said. And you know, at the end of the day, they're not going to put that we were great marketers or salespeople or or business owners or entrepreneurs on our headstones, are they? They're gonna they're gonna remember us for the difference we made in other people's lives, right?
1: That's so nice, and I know you have as well. So, uh, it's. You know, I think in, in, in leaving that people should understand that our purpose in life, we're rewarded in life, in every form, but certainly in business, in direct proportion to the problem, to the quantity, quality, consistency of problems we solve and opportunities we make possible for others. And if you think about it, if you're not solving a problem differently than other people or making opportunities available, you have no value.
0: Yeah, that, that's both convicting and compelling at the same time. So thanks again, Jay. Brother, love you. Appreciate what you do and, and appreciate the, the work we're doing together.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. And, and concurrently, I'm looking forward to collaborating with you on some wonderful things. So hopefully we will, uh, you know, we will transform the world for the better.
0: Well said. Appreciate you and look forward to having you on again sometime real soon.